4. Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then down to verse 18. Verse 18, therefore, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who receives seed by the wayside. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word, And the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. But he who receives seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. If you turn to 1 John then chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1, the first four verses. 1 John 1 at verse 1, we read, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifest, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us, That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. And then toward the end, chapter 5, at verse 9. 1 John 5, at verse 9 through verse 13. Verse 9, if we receive... The witness of man, the witness of God is greater, for this is the witness of God which he has testified of his Son. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. I invite you to take out the Forms and Prayers book and to turn in there to Lord's Day 7 of the Heidelberg Catechism, page 208. So we look at what the church confesses God's word to teach. Page 208. 
It asks in question 20, are all people then saved through Christ just as they were lost through Adam? And the answer is no, only those are saved who, true, who through true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all his benefits. And then it's asked, well, what is true faith? True faith is not only a sure knowledge by which I hold as true all that God has revealed to us in his word, it is also a wholehearted trust which the Holy Spirit works in me by the gospel that God has freely granted not only to others but to me also the forgiveness of sins, eternal righteousness, and salvation. These gifts are purely of grace only because of Christ's merit. What then must a Christian believe? Answer, all that is promised us in the gospel, a summary of which is taught us in the articles of our Catholic an undoubted Christian faith. What are these articles? And what follows is the Apostles' Creed. Let's bow before God and ask for his blessing tonight. Father, we do bow to ask for your help, for your mercies, for your visit from heaven. You will work in us tonight something eternal. We pray, Father, that you will bless us through the teaching of your word that you'll use the instruments that you are pleased to use, and even the preaching of the gospel. Grant your word to be preached in truth. Guard us from error. Strengthen us in our Lord Jesus, we pray. In his name, amen. Well, Congregation of Christ, we consider tonight true faith, and we know from the Bible that faith is vitally, vitally important. We heard in the Gospel of John chapter 3 earlier that he who believes, he who has faith, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe, who does not believe the Son, shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Everlasting life or everlasting wrath, and it comes down to The question, do we believe? Do we have faith? And so faith in the Bible is the thing, isn't it, that that unites us to the Lord Jesus and all of his benefits. Unbelief means there's no bond between us and Christ, and therefore everything he is as the Son of God, come in human nature, having died on the cross, the risen one, the ascended one, everything he is, all that he has done, all that he possesses, is outside of us and no use to us because we have no connection to him. You could think of it this way. You know some rich men, right? We know names of people like Warren Buffett or Bill Gates or Elon Musk. They have great wealth, untold wealth, and and they undoubtedly have resources of various kinds, and they certainly know people and know how to get things done. But just knowing who they are, what benefit does that bring you? You don't have access to their bank accounts, Unless you're someone special, you don't have their phone number to call them up for a favor. Everything that they are, everything that they possess, everything they can do remains disconnected, unavailable to you. Similarly, there's many people in the world who know something about Jesus. They, maybe they've read the Bible. Maybe they've sat in church. Maybe they know about this Lord Jesus, the Son of God who's died for sinners. But all of that is of no benefit to them 
without the bond of faith, without faith. It does nothing for them without fellowship with Christ. You can have a house that's built next to a giant power plant, produces energy enough for half a city, but if there's no, there's no wire between that plant and your house, then all that it possesses, all that it works, doesn't work for you. So the catechism, you see, is telling us about faith. And it's important because the catechism up to this point, remember, has, has rehearsed that we're all dead in sin through Adam. We're all guilty through the first Adam. And then it went on to ask, well, can we be redeemed? Is there a redeemer? And it laid out the criteria for the redeemer. He must be true God. He must be true man. He must be a righteous one. And it said there is such a one. One, one, only one. Jesus Christ, who was the fit substitute for sinners to die in their place. He's the The last Adam. The first Adam brought us death. The last Adam brings life. And now the catechism says, well, if that's true, that all have died in Adam, are all saved in Christ? And the answer is no. No. But only those are saved who have true faith and are grafted into Christ and accept all his benefits. Jesus is not everyone's savior, but he's the savior of those who believe. Let's look tonight at faith, noting, first of all, false faith, and then true faith. I want to look, first of all, at false faith. The Bible does tell us about false faith, and that's interesting, isn't it? The Bible not only tells us what true faith is, it tells us what phony faith is. And if you think about scriptures, the scriptures have a comprehensive explanation, don't they? The Bible tells us not only what is right, but it tells us what is wrong. It tells us not only about God, but it describes for us Satan. The Bible tells us not only what's right in the world, but what's wrong in the world. The Bible, and the Bible alone, right? Just look at all religions. The Bible alone can account for everything. And the Bible accounts for false faith. In the parable of the sower, we have four portraits, don't we, of, of different soils. And the first three all describe Various forms of false faith. Parables about Jesus, the sower, right? Who goes out to sow the seed of his word, the gospel of his kingdom. And yet, even Jesus is met with unbelief, isn't he? As you read through the gospel accounts, Jesus often is met with outright rejection or met with people who embrace him for a while and then depart from him. It's interesting, isn't it, that it's not just preaching at IRC in 2023 that's met with unbelief. The apostles met unbelief. The Son of God, who preached perfect sermons, met unbelief. The Bible wants us to know that there is unbelief and there is even phony faith. In Matthew 13, Jesus speaks, first of all, of the seed that, that falls by the wayside. We know in Christ's day they didn't have tractors and didn't plant 20 rows of corn at once. But the, the farmer walked through the field with a sack of grain and he scattered that seed. And as he threw some by the edge of his field, some fell on the hardened soil, the pathway, the road next to the field. And it was plucked away by birds. And Jesus says that's like those who hear the word, but it, it doesn't penetrate. They don't understand it and Satan just takes it away. It's those who are insensitive to the meaning of the word, to the truth of the word. It goes in one ear and out the other. Maybe they're even interested in the word historically. They, they like to read books about religion, but they don't understand it. They don't take it to heart, and it is taken from them. And then he talks about seed that falls on the stony soil, where, where the, the soil is very shallow. 
The rock is not far beneath. And because it's shallow, it warms up quickly and it germinates and it sprouts up. And these are people who get very excited about the word, right? They go running off with the word. They are people who are superficial and shallow and flighty, as the Dutch theologian Herman Boffink writes of them. Herman Boffink was a Dutch pastor, theologian, seminary professor, died in 1921. He has some good language and concepts I make use of tonight. He writes of these that the gospel appeals to them at first because of its beauty, loftiness, its simplicity or loveliness, and it also makes a certain impression on them. They're moved and stirred by it. They give it a place in their memory, in their imagination, in their reason, but they do not open up the depths of their being to it. There is a thin layer of soil on the surface where the word falls, but underneath everything is cold, inert, and hard as rock. It's a temporary faith. There's such a thing as a temporary faith. It's not true faith. Looks like true faith for a while. Thirdly, Jesus speaks of the thorny soil. And those who seem to receive the word, but it's overcome by the cares of this world. They're so enamored with the things of earth, with this life, or with the deceitfulness of riches. Bovink writes, sometimes the word penetrates through all those worldly troubles and pleasures and reaches their hearts. The thought sometimes comes up in them that it might be better to break with the world than to seek the kingdom of God. Sometimes the fear of judgment masters them. But when the seed of the word is at the point of germination, the thorns come. The worldly cares and lusts and they choke the birth of the new life. These persons never reach the point of forsaking everything to take up their cross and to follow Jesus. The might of the world is too much for them. Striking that Christ goes to such trouble. Three different portraits of unbelief. Unbelief may take the form of outright and hostile rejection, but unbelief may also take the form of momentary reception. And Jesus met both kinds, right? He had the proud Pharisees who hated him from the start, who were hostile to him. He had Pilate and his indifference. What is truth? But Christ also encountered people who followed him, who, who, who clung to him, and then later departed him. John 12 speaks of those rulers who believe, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they be put out of the synagogue, for they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. Apostle Paul also encountered faith that did not last. Those who made shipwreck of their faith, he said. Or Demas, he tells Timothy, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world and has departed for Thessalonica. False faith comes in different disguises. Sometimes theologians speak about historical faith and temporal faith and miracle faith. Historical faith are, are those who don't contradict the word. They, they say they believe the word. They accept the testimony. And yet, it doesn't go far enough. It stops at the externals. It doesn't produce repentance in them. It leaves no living union with Jesus. It just accepts the facts of the Bible, as it were. Temporal faith, as we've seen last but a while, it, it's mesmerized by the gospel. It embraces, delights in it, 
but falls away. And miracle faith, as we saw this morning, miraculous faith. Jesus warned about those who seek him only for the signs and for the wonders. They, they, they're enamored with the power, but they don't want the person of Jesus as he is, the Christ who's come for sinners to reconcile them to God. And, and so all of this reminds us of what Paul told Timothy, that some have a form of godliness, but deny its power. And that's, that's good language to remember. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Why does the Bible tell us about false faith? I think there's at least three reasons. Number one, it's certainly the grace of God to warn against being self-deceived, right? The worst thing you could hear on the day of judgment, having thought you belong to Christ, is to hear, depart from me, I never knew you. The Lord is merciful. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith, Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Now, the Bible doesn't call us to self-examination to, to discur, disturb the consciences of, of the faithful or, or to make us think that self-examination is this rigorous, long test that's very mysterious and nobody can ever know if they're actually saved. That's certainly not the point. John, as we said, as we saw in chapter 5, wrote, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And then he says, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Or in chapter 1, he said, I write this to you that your joy may be full. You can know. You can know that you have Christ. You can read First John. You can see the test. How do you know if you're in Christ? Well, you must walk as Christ did. You must walk in the light. Do you love the brothers? Do you, do you want to obey God's commandments? Do you confess Jesus the Christ, the Son of God? These are how you know if you're in Christ Jesus. So the warnings of Scripture are designed to call the self-assured to turn from self-deception to Christ and to warn believers to press on in the faith, to take hold of eternal life, to fight the good fight. But I think a second reason that God warns us of false faith or describes it for us is so that we can understand the world around us. That there are those who have a form of godliness but who deny its power. If we didn't know that from the word that there is such a thing as false faith, wouldn't we become quite disillusioned? We've all seen people who they seem to believe. And we're tempted to say, how can this be? They were so on fire for the Lord. I heard them pray. I saw them. The works they did. Well, we'd be very confused and bewildered if Jesus didn't tell us. There's such a thing as a shallow faith, a superficial faith that is not true faith. But thirdly, I think the Lord tells us about false faith to help us distinguish the true from the false. So that we can recognize the true faith within us. As we confess in the Lord's Supper form, true faith is never all that it should be. It's never perfect. We confess in the Lord's Supper form, we do not come to the Supper to testify about our own perfection and righteousness, but on the contrary, we come seeking life in Jesus Christ apart from ourselves. We come confessing our misery, admitting that we have many shortcomings and have not perfect faith. We also confess that we do not serve God with sufficient zeal. 
but that we must struggle daily with the weakness of our faith and struggle against the evil lusts of our flesh. However, the grace of the Holy Spirit makes us sorry for our shortcomings, helps, gives us the desire to live according to God's commandments, and helps us fight against unbelief. There is such a thing as true faith. It's not perfect, but it's genuine, it's sincere. Christ in his parable tells us there is seed that falls on good soil and is fruitful, and is fruitful. It's soil well prepared by the Spirit. It's seed that germinates and grows and produces a harvest. Though the fruit varies, Christ says, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Not all faith, not all true faith is equally strong. Not all faith, not all true faith is equally productive. But there is true faith in the hearts of Christ's people. Well, what is true faith? Let's look at that secondly tonight. What is true faith? Let's look at its source, its knowledge, and its trust. True faith is distinguished from phony faith because true faith has a different origin. False faith and all unbelief comes out of man, right? The natural man. Everyone who has experienced the natural birth, who's been born to this world of a woman, is a child of Adam, can produce phony faith. But true faith, well, that requires you must be born again. As Jesus told Nicodemus, or born from above, you must, you must receive the second birth. Apart from that, we live under the dominion of Satan. We love darkness and not light. We can't understand. 2 Corinthians 2 says, The natural man, one who hasn't had the second birth, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. So we confess rightly tonight that true faith is the wholehearted trust which the Holy Spirit works in me by the gospel. True faith doesn't have its origin in man, but in God, in God. Remember what John 1 says, speaks of those who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God's children are born of God's Spirit. Christ, by his death on the cross, purchased that spirit for us. He he has purchased for us that life-giving spirit. What a glorious thing it is. Christ comes into a heart by his spirit, and he he regenerates it. He gives it new life. He, He gives it the gift of faith. Jesus says in John 6 that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. But he says in the same chapter, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Jesus made a distinction in John 10 when he said to the hard-hearted Jews, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me and I give them eternal life. There are sheep belong to Jesus who who have, who have heard the voice of the shepherd, who have recognized the voice of Christ. Their ears have been opened. Their eyes have been opened. They comprehend 
his goodness. They hear his grace. They, they perceive his mercies and they hear him calling and they follow. It's the gift of the Lord Jesus by his spirit. True faith has a different source than unbelief. Secondly, true faith has a different knowledge. Has a different knowledge. True faith and false faith might appear at times to have the same knowledge, right? There's some who, 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 who have that temporary faith who seem to possess, right, the same body of knowledge. They seem to believe the same things, but, but they don't. I'll say more, more about that in just a moment. But, but, but knowledge, we know, is essential to true faith, right? You can't, you can't trust in a Jesus you don't know. If someone tomorrow you've never met says, ah, it's okay, I trust you. Well, if they don't know you, and if no one has borne witness to them concerning your character, then they don't trust you. They may mean, I, you know, I'm going to try to trust you, I want to trust you. Or they may mean, you know what, I'm not afraid, I can afford to lose 50 bucks, it doesn't scare me. But they don't trust you. You can't trust someone you don't know, someone you know nothing about. And there's no faith in a Jesus that, that, that hasn't been made known to us. In terms of who he is, in terms of his trustworthiness and his glory. We need the revelation from heaven. John says, right, that, that we are the witnesses. First John 1, he's saying the things that we have heard and seen and touched. The Apostle John heard Jesus. He saw Jesus. He touched Jesus. We witnessed his death. We witnessed the resurrected Jesus. These things that we witness, we declare to you so that you can have fellowship with us, John says. And our fellowship is in the Father and in the Son. And so the apostle's job was to, was to set forward the, the knowledge necessary to know Jesus and through Jesus to know the Father. We can't build up the truth we have to believe. We can't build it out of thin air. We can't build it out of our own imagination. We can't build it out of our own experiences. We are receiving invisible things, things unknown to us, and they're communicated by God to us. So we need knowledge. We need the knowledge of the Word. We need the knowledge of the Scriptures. The church, Ephesians 2, is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. We need the word to create faith. We need the word to strengthen faith. And, and therefore, we need to remind one another that we have to live in the scriptures. All things being equal, the more that we're in God's word, the more we sit under the preaching of God's word, the stronger our faith would be, right? The, the more of Christ that we come to know through his word. Knowledge is essential. But let me return to this fact that the knowledge of unbelief and the knowledge of belief are not the same. It may appear, right, that, that, that those who have come to church, who have mastered, in a sense, the, the letters of Scripture, they know what the book says, and who had the temporary faith and believed for a while, that they had the same knowledge as the believer. But I was struck by what Herman Bovink wrote. As I was reading this week, he made the point that the knowledge of faith is peculiar. It's not mere theological knowledge that you get through scientific investigation. 
It's not merely accepting a historical report of who Jesus is, but Bovink writes, the knowledge of faith is a practical knowledge, a knowledge of the heart rather than of the head, a knowledge with a personal, profound, soul-absorbing concern, for it pertains to something in which the self, in its most in most essence, is concerned something in which my existence, my life, my soul, my salvation is involved. And then he writes, but if the knowledge does not lead to confidence and trust, it was not the right kind of knowledge. Psalm 9 says, they that know the name of the Lord put their trust in him. But those who do not trust him have not yet learned to know him from his word as he really is. Isn't that interesting? I think it's biblical. Maybe we could put it this way, that anyone who says, yeah, yeah, I know what the Bible's about. I I, I know what it says about Jesus. I, I know the scriptures. I know God's word. If If the word has not led them to repentance, they actually haven't known it. No matter how much they've studied it. Because true faith is to to hear a word that speaks to us in terms of our real need. To hear the truth is to hear God speaking a word that is absolutely true, that that breaks my heart, that says there's no other way, a word that's calling me to himself. It's to hear God's word, not simply as intellectual knowledge, but as a knowledge in love. It's to hear the voice of Christ. If you don't hear that in Scripture, you actually, you don't know. You don't know the same body of truth. You, You haven't heard. And so, the knowledge of faith is a peculiar knowledge. It's the knowledge of accepting the scriptures as God's word. True faith is not only a sure knowledge by which I hold as true all that God has revealed to us in his word, which I take it to heart. But then he goes on, the catechism goes on to say, It's also a wholehearted trust. And that's the final thing I want to mention about faith. Not just its source is different, it comes from the Spirit, and its knowledge is different. But finally, its trust is different. It's a genuine trust in Jesus Christ himself. It's a wholehearted trust which the Spirit works in us by the gospel, that God has freely granted not only to others, but to me also forgiveness of sins, Eternal righteousness and salvation by Christ's merits. Faith is not only a knowledge, but it's to entrust ourselves to another. It's confidence in another. It's to surrender ourselves into the saving Savior. It's interesting when you read through like the Psalms, the words faith or belief are not used so often, but in the book of Psalms, you find all kinds of other words, right? You, you read about those who wait on God, who cry out to God, who seek refuge in God, who fear God, who hope in God, who seek God, who long for God, who hide in God. These are all so many different ways of saying faith, right? 
their confidence in another outside myself that I entrust my life, that I rely upon another, and that other is Christ. Believers are are those who are engaged with God. They're busy and active with God. True faith is not a mere acceptance of his historical report about these facts of history of who Jesus was, but it's to rely upon him. True faith is very personal in that way. True faith hears the gospel preached. It it sees the Savior presented in in the gospel, and it, it says, mine, for me, yes, for me, he's mine. True faith, it's not something your, your parents can do for you, your children can do for you, or the church can do for you. You must believe. You must entrust yourself to Jesus Christ. A wholehearted trust that the Spirit works in me. That God has given forgiveness not just to others, but to me also. I flee to him. I rest in him. I rely upon him. I know him. I hear his voice and I follow him. This is the glory of faith. The world can never understand it. But the Christian has experienced it. And all the riches of the Son of God, all that he is, the eternal Son of God, all that he's done coming to earth in our human nature and Obeying all of the commandments of God perfectly. And devoting himself to the Father to go to the cross. And and bearing the eternal wrath of God upon that cross. And rising from the dead. And ascending to heaven. All that he is, is mine. And all that he owns as as the, the heir of all things of his Father. He owns heaven. He owns earth. All authority in heaven on earth belongs to him. The nations are his. It's mine. And all that he's purchased, the complete forgiveness of sins, the spirit as the spirit of life, a home in heaven forever to reign with God, all that he's purchased is mine. This is what faith possesses. What a glorious thing that we, through that simple, and wonderful bond of faith become the possessors of the Lord Jesus and everything that is his. He who has the Son has everlasting life. He who does not have the Son, the wrath of God abides on him. In the end, this is what it all comes down to, doesn't it? The great separation that's coming at the return of Jesus Christ will divide between those who believed on the Son and those who did not. May God give us tonight to rejoice in this tremendous, tremendous gift that he has come to our dead hearts and imparted to us the gift of faith so that the Lord Jesus and his Father and the Spirit are ours forever. Amen. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for the great miracle that you do upon the face of the earth, that you give life to dead hearts, and that you give faith to those who are unbelieving.
We praise you, Lord, for the great wonder of faith. We thank you, Lord, that you've exposed the phony faith. We pray, Father, that you would give us faith, that you preserve our faith, that you would grow our faith, and that you, through the preaching of the gospel, would visit many hearts to give them this gift also. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.